Watching dolphins out at sea is one of the greatest sights in the animal kingdom. Emily and I were once fortunate enough to see a whole group of them chasing the ferry across the sky. It was as though they were racing it to the port, playing a game. And to see these beautiful creatures come to the surface and leap from the water was just magnificent. What was wonderful was that you sensed that these animals were free. They were doing what they wanted to do, living their own lives with enjoyment. Of course, some dolphins are kept in captivity. Some are kept in great aquariums where they are usually well looked after. They're regularly fed, they're taught to do some remarkable things. Dolphins are intelligent. They enjoy working and playing with humans and showing off before an audience. However, not everyone approves of them being kept in captivity for human amusement. I would be one in that camp. But a few years ago, something really interesting happened. Some animal rights protesters broke in and set some dolphins free from a US aquarium on the Pacific coast of America. What happened next was remarkable. The dolphins swam out some distance, spent a time at sea, and then voluntarily returned to the aquarium. They've become so accustomed to living in captivity that that life now seems more attractive than living free. Being fed at regular intervals was easier than the dolphins having to fend for themselves. If you think of the Old Testament, you can see this behaviour is found in human beings too. Israel were in captivity in Egypt, and it was truly awful. God heard their cries, and he called Moses to break them out into the desert. But as soon as Israel got there, they wanted to go back. The future was now unknown. A long journey stretched ahead of them. They were not sure where their next drink or their next meal was going to come from. And when God did send them manna, they soon got tired of it. So very quickly on their release from captivity, Israel became afraid and started complaining that they were better off in Egypt. They even plotted to choose a different leader to Moses who would take them back. What happened with those dolphins and Israel in the Old Testament is still a reality for some Christians today. People come to faith, they experience being set free from their sin and old habits and a difficult past and their conversions initially bring them great joy, but fairly quickly they realise that the Christian journey can be long and difficult and some of their friends start to disappear and suffering comes and doubts begin to appear. And suddenly it can seem easier to go back to how they lived before. The life that they knew with the influences and the people that they had grown used to. Christians do go back. We sometimes call this backsliding. Backsliding from God and faith in Christ. 
It happens a lot to church young people when they go to university and experience the pressures of life there. But it can happen to anybody at any stage. Maybe this was you once. Maybe this is your friends, your family members, even your children now. Of course, whenever we see Christians going backwards, it causes us pain, it causes us worry, because we know what's at stake. But we often don't know what to do about it. In this passage, Paul tries to tackle this very issue. By doing so, he gives us a warning about backsliding ourselves, but he also gives us guidance on how to respond when people we know and love seem determined to return to captivity. In the previous passage of this powerful letter, we saw Paul refer to the Galatians' pre-Christian experience as a form of slavery. And in that sermon, we discovered that that was a good analogy. At that time, the Galatians, who were Gentiles living in what is now modern-day Turkey, didn't know the living God. So they followed idols and the rituals of paganism. And every day they had to act to placate the gods. If they didn't get their devotions right, they feared a thunderbolt from the skies. If they wanted a good crop, they had to go to the temple and make an offering to the god of the harvest. If they wanted a baby, they had to go to another temple and make an offering to the fertility god. If they wanted a safe voyage, they had to go and honour the god of the sea. And if they failed to get these devotions right, and in the right order, they feared disaster. It was a religion of blackmail. And it resulted in a, a suffocating life where you were never quite sure whether you'd done enough to be granted favour. Paul describes it as a form of slavery. But through Paul's ministry, wonderfully, God had sought the Galatians out. And when they come to hear about Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, and they trusted in him, they experienced being set free. They learned that when Christ died to forgive their sins and rose again, he proved that he was the one true God. And if Jesus was the one true God, then all those other idols were fake. They were false. They didn't exist. Through Christ, their power was broken. But here is the sad news. As our passage today began, we heard Paul announce that the Galatians were returning back to captivity once more. Not slavery to the pagan idols that they used to follow and worship, but a new form of slavery. Slavery to the Jewish law. Prior to the arrival of Jesus on earth, the law was a good thing. It guided the people on how to live. It showed them their need for forgiveness. It pointed towards the fulfilment of God's plans when he would send a saviour to the earth. And it kept God's people together while they waited. The Jewish law was given by God with a purpose within his overall plan. But now that Christ had come, 
that plan had been fulfilled and the law was no longer necessary. In fact, Paul believes that anyone who goes back to following the minutiae of the law in order to somehow gain acceptance from God was acting as though the law was independent from God, as if the law stood on its own right and for all time. And Paul thinks this behaviour turns the law itself into a god. It makes it an idol. We've discovered over the last six weeks that the issue in Galatia is that some Jewish nationalists have come into the region and started giving instructions to these new converts to the faith. They're telling them that believing in Jesus is not enough to be acceptable to God. You've got to follow all of the Jewish law as well. You've got to become a Jew if you really want to be part of God's family. For Paul, that is nothing short of another form of slavery. It takes the Galatians back to worrying whether they've done enough to earn God's favour. Have they been circumcised? Are they eating the right food and with the right people? Have they kept all the festivals correctly? Have they kept the Sabbath as they should? The Galatians have been convinced by these nationalists that all of this is necessary for salvation. When, of course, none of those things have been in the law for that purpose at all. Membership in God's family had always been on the basis of faith, not by ethnic identity and whether you were a Jew or not. To us today... It seems crazy that the Galatians would be tempted to follow this teaching and return to a form of slavery. But after Paul had left Galatia, these new believers felt that they were alone. Their future was uncertain. And somehow the behaviour of the past seemed attractive. Somehow life seemed safer when it was regulated and there were a rigorous set of rules and devotions that you had to practice. Life was clearer when you knew who you were and what you had to do each and every day. And that is exactly why legalism still flourishes in vast swathes of the church today. It seems safer to have a set of rules that you mark everybody off against than to allow that everybody is free. Freed by Christ to live a life that's now guided by the Spirit. And that being guided by the Spirit is the way to become like Jesus today. So this is what is going on in Galatia. And it's why as we come to our passage that we can see that Paul is utterly exasperated about the about turn the Galatians are making. Indeed, in verse 11, he says, I fear that I've wasted my time. You're going back to the same mess that you were in before I arrived in the region. You are relying on things that are not Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is all you need to be acceptable to God. Nothing else. Now, Paul is a great pastor. And his heart breaks for the Galatians. He's desperate to help them. That's why he's writing this letter. He's hoping that he can open their eyes and get them back on track. 
And here in this passage, we see the raw emotion pouring out of Paul. In verse 19, he writes to the Galatians as his children who he has given birth to. He's like an agonizing mother who worries for her child and longs to see that child reach full maturity. And in trying to turn the Galatians around in this passage, Paul does two things simultaneously. Like a good mother or a parent, he's both honest and he's kind. He holds his children to account and yet expresses his ongoing care and love. He gives them bad news and he gives them good news. First of all, we see that Paul is absolutely honest with the Galatians. He gives them the truth. The bad news is they are slaves again. Paul doesn't hold back. In verse 9, he says they are subject again to weak and miserable principles. The step they've taken to go back to this captivity is foolish. It's oppressive. Paul wants them to know that from turning away from Jesus has consequences. Not just for life after death, but life in the present. Paul says that in verse 15, since the Galatians have started following the teaching of these nationalists and returned to captivity and following lots of rules, they've lost their joy. That's right, the Galatians, they'd known great joy when they came to faith, but now it's gone. They live in fear again. Fear of the law. They're being suffocated by its demands. There's no God-given freedom to their life. Just restriction. And Paul states again what has happened. The Galatians, they've been hoodwinked by the zeal of these nationalists. And the Galatians must know that these people who've come into their land and started speaking to them, they've got their zeal in the wrong place. Their zeal is for the nation of Israel, political Israel. Their zeal is not for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is blunt, the Galatians, you've been led astray. And the evidence is there for you all to see. Your joy is gone. This is the bad news. And it's so bad that Paul fears being seen as an enemy by the Galatians for speaking out. But Paul knows he has to say this because if he didn't, he'd be failing to love them as he should. It's like when people give bad news to us in order to help us. Andrew, you look terrible. You're tired. You're worn out. Take a break. Andrew, uh, there's smoke coming out of your kitchen window. The news is bad. But we give it because we hope it will produce a helpful response. It's necessary. But alongside the bad news is Paul's aching friendship towards the Galatians. The kindness he goes on showing them. The positive example he sets. And Paul also gives his readers the good news. And the good news is there's still a way back. First of all, listen again to Paul's language in this passage. I plead with you, my brothers and sisters. You treated me so well when I was ill. You welcomed me like an angel. You do anything for me, even as I tried to serve you. I'm in pain for you. 
I long to see you mature. I wish I was with you and didn't have to say these things. This is earnest emotion. Paul is calling on real friendship, intimacy, openness. Secondly, notice how Paul tries to put himself in the Galatians' shoes. He can relate to their struggle. In verse 12, he says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, because I became like you. And what Paul is saying is, I once used to be in your position. I used to follow the law zealously. I used to make sure I kept all the minutiae of it. And then I too was shown by Jesus how wrong I was. And I had to step out in faith and follow the Spirit to become like Jesus. I've struggled with the same issues that you have, but I got through them. Press on and you will get through too. And what I love about these verses is that Paul gets the balance so well. He says in verse 12, you've done me no wrong. In other words, I'm hurt by you going back to your old ways, but ultimately that's nothing at all because the real wrong you're doing is to Jesus. He died for you. He died to save you, to release you from all these things, and yet you're going back to try and earn God's favour by works once more. I hope we get what is going on here. Paul is pleading. He's yearning for the Galatians to come back to Jesus. And in the last verse, he holds out hope. Paul wants to be with them. He wants to be by their side. And yes, he's completely perplexed by them at the moment, but his tone can change. And it will change if they return to Jesus. The message is clear. If the Galatians want guidance, if they want structure to their life, then they should be zealous for Jesus. Follow his example in the power of the Spirit. That is the route to joy and life. Freedom in Christ really is better than captivity. This is the good news. So this is a wonderful, powerful, emotional passage where we really see Paul's heart laid bare. But let's just finish now by thinking what it is we should take away for our own lives today. We began by saying that like dolphins, human beings have a habit of going backwards, of returning to previous ways of life because the known seems safer than the unknown. The static seems safer than the adventure. Even routines of captivity can seem more secure than hard-won freedom. And consequently, Christians today still backslide. They still turn from their faith in Jesus. They still begin to behave as they once did. They still return to serving all the idols of the world today. They still return to trying to earn God's favour by works of merit. The first thing that we must take away from this passage is a warning. This mustn't become our story We've met Jesus. We've been saved by Jesus. We have the joy of Jesus within us. Don't walk away from that. Stick to Jesus at all costs.
at all costs. But secondly, we should consider how we are to respond when we see our friends and our family members falling away from faith. And I think Paul gives us the ideal response. We have to be honest and yet kind. We have to hold them to account and yet remain their friends. We have to give both the bad and the good news. You know, there are two equal and opposite dangers when we're trying to help people who are walking away. Some Christians seem to take some great delight in explaining how angry God is at sin. They love delivering a word of judgment far more than a word of grace. They love to denounce whole people groups and actions. And you see them walking around with their placards and their billboards proclaiming hellfire and condemnation. But very rarely does that ever win anyone over. And that's certainly not how Jesus behaved with adulterers and prostitutes and tax collectors. But on the other hand, some Christians water down the gospel so much, there's no bad news at all. And they do this because they think somehow it makes it more palatable for their friends and their family. And when this happens, Christianity just becomes a feel-good religion designed to make people feel better and raise their self-esteem. It tricks people into thinking that somehow they deserve God's favour in their own right. And that doesn't work either. It doesn't serve Jesus, who spoke more about hell and judgment than anyone else in the Bible. And it doesn't show our confidence in the justice of God to do what is right and remove sin from his world. Now, if we want to win our friends and our family back, we have to give them both the bad and the good news. In this passage, Paul spoke about being zealous for the right things. In these circumstances, we need to be passionate for God and passionate for our friends and family. We need to pray and pray and pray again for those who are sliding back. We need to yearn for them. We need to allow our hearts to break for them. And we need to keep offering friendship to them. We have to be honest. Tell them what they're doing. Tell them the consequences of leaving Jesus behind. But we keep offering the gospel. And we never close the door. Ultimately, God will see that the efforts we make for those sliding away, and like he did for Paul, will not be all for nothing.